I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Thank you for tuning in to the Semper Reformanda Radio. This is where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. And we've got a lot of important uh, topics to discuss today. I'm your host, Carlos Montijo, and I'm going to be flying solo this time for for this episode. Uh, Tim Shaughnessy, my usual uh, co-host, um, wasn't able to make it today. We've had a lot going on uh, recently, so I wanted to also thank everyone our listeners and um, our readers for your patience. Uh, we've we've still had a lot of um, obstacles and just sickness to be fighting through and vacation and stuff like that. So, um, but I'm I'm very eager to to get back on and to jump on this topic. Um, it's a very important topic to discuss. It's a, it's a recent um, event specifically uh, dealing with uh, Joshua Harris in particular and his um his falling away so uh, but before we get to that i wanted to make a few announcements today the first is that um the trinity foundation is now on social media so you can follow them on facebook and twitter and that's a shout out to stephen t matthews uh, the, he is the director of social media for the trinity foundation and he is also one of the uh host he is the host of um radio lux lucid on a very very good podcast on our uh, network the thorn crown network it's an excellent podcast uh, dealing with a lot of topics like politics economics uh, from a biblical scripturalist perspective so definitely recommend that you check out his podcast and his articles as well on the the scripturalist um, blog on our blog as well the next um, big update sad update is that um, and I'm reading this from the Trinity Foundation's website um, sadly, Richard Bennett, founder of Berean Beacon Ministries, went home to be with his Lord and Savior yesterday, uh, which was September 23rd, 2019. Um, this is this is really sad news to hear, but um, I'm glad that he's finally uh, at home with the Lord. Uh, Richard Bennett is the founder of Berean Beacon Ministries, and he was a former Roman Catholic priest. He has outstanding material um, for Catholics. Anybody 
you know as a Catholic, um, he has excellent, excellent resources and websites for, uh, for Roman Catholics. And um, I'll keep reading the, the announcement here. It says, Arrangements are underway for his memorial service and will be posted on his ministry's website at bereanbeacon.org later today or tomorrow. Please pray for Richard's wife, Lynn, as she makes arrangements while she is still battling stage 4 cancer. Update. After the last few years of great physical suffering, Richard passed peacefully in his sleep on Monday, September 23, 2019. The precious life of Richard Bennett touched so many people in so many ways, and his spiritual legacy will continue to well will continue well into the 21st century. Richard Bennett will be laid to rest Friday, October 4, 2019. At 10:30 a.m. Pacific Daylight Savings Time, burial will take place at Net the 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 Natchez Cemetery, Cal Lowry Road in Old Natchez Highway, Natchez, Washington 98937. A memorial service will be held at 11:30 at the Ath Atanum Pioneer Church, 8500 Atanum Road, Yakima, Washington 98902. Richard Bennett is survived by his loving wife, Lynn, and three stepchildren, solving. Gunner and Cunnett, and two grandchildren. Very sad news to hear. I would have loved to have met him in this life, but hopefully, look forward to meeting him in the next. And um, he has done a great, great service to the church. He has been a tremendous blessing in his ministry um, to the church, especially in ministry to um, to Roman Catholics. So our heart goes out to um, the Bennett family, and the prayers go out to them as well. And so, speaking of the, the topic of death and, and well, specifically uh, the recent mass shooting that happened in El Paso not too long ago, um, this, this issue is it's not something I really want to get into today. Uh, we'll probably do a future episode with, uh, with Tim and, and, um, and talk about that. But I, I did want to point to our readers how to, there's an excellent article on the scriptureless blog and, and Thorn Crown Ministries website, thorncrownministries.com, that um, I highly encourage everyone to check out. It was written by Steve Matthews, who I mentioned earlier. He's the host of the Radio Lux Lucid podcast. And the title of the article is called Mass Shootings, What Are Christians to Make of Them? And it is an excellent, excellent article dealing with this topic. It's a very difficult topic. Um, a lot of different opinions on how to d address it and deal with it, but um, uh, Brother Steve uh, really did an, an excellent job in, um, in, in this article, so I, I highly recommend everybody to, to check that out. And we uh, just stay tuned for, Lord willing, a future episode where we can um, flesh, uh, talk about that specifically um, in the recent shootings. Alright, so that's a wrap for the announcements and updates. So now... I want to I want to dive into the topic and um I chose I chose a specific uh 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 curious um if if you might you might have been thrown off a little bit or maybe wondered at the title of this episode um you know it might sound a little redundant why why did I decide to name it Joshua Harris um abandons his shipwrecked faith that sounds a little redundant um, but there's a specific reason as to why I said that and I I've been doing some research for a while now re regarding what had happened 
his his recent announcement of of leaving uh, the church and and um, embracing the LGBT community and all of those things. And I've listened to several several episodes, several podcasts about uh, discussing Joshua Harris and and they've been mostly helpful. But um, there's some things that have been crucial in the life of Joshua Harris and in his teaching that have not been discussed. I have not seen anybody talk about this. And it's it's partly why I think it's important to uh, for people who do podcasts or who do uh, news or who who have a platform to discuss these kinds of issues. Um, it's some. I think it's generally very helpful to do some homework first. Uh, we we try to do that as much as possible here at a at Thorn Crown Ministries, Thorn Crown Network, Semper Reformanda Radio. That's one of the. That's really one of a, like a, a a primary principle that we operate on, and we've done this throughout. Uh, even back when we were with the Bible thumping wingnut, uh, we tried. We were very diligent about studying New Covenant theology and addressing with that topic. And also, even with like um, when I wrote a review of the Shack, a lot of people were just kind of pointing to other resources, and that were pointing to other resources. And it wasn't um, sometimes the resources. The resources were were by people who haven't actually read the book. So. Uh, when I deal with a topic, I do my best to read up on it and and actually read the material, read the books, and and give a give a, a, a hopefully a more qualified, uh, a more fruitful discussion on that. And so that's partly what motivated me to to want to talk about uh, Joshua Harris, and especially because there's a lot of personal. There, there's not so much. There is a history tied to to. The church that Tim and I met in, that we used to attend, um, the leadership there um, really liked Joshua Harris's uh, uh, Joshua Harris and his material because it was a Sovereign Grace Ministries church, and that's what uh, Joshua Harris and and C.J. Mahaney they were like one of the main leaders of that of that movement or denomination or whatever they call themselves, and so this is. The, th- this was pretty significant um, hearing about this, uh, just given the history that we have, and which be- when we were going through the issues with presenting the issues with Tim Keller at this church, they had actually recommended that we read material from Joshua Harris, and that's how I found out about him, um, uh, and and kind of started to 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 read more up on him. But there's a reason why I gave, going back to the original thing that I mentioned, that there's a reason I, I, I mentioned or I, I titled the episode in this way because there were already some serious issues that I found with, with um, Josh Harris going back all the way to at least 2010. And to my knowledge, you know, I didn't do a bunch of research or homework in, on the Internet to see what people had uncovered about this guy and uh, the some of the uh, critiques of his views, but he had some very alarming, problematic issues, uh, doctrines that he was teaching in in his book. Specifically, the book "Dug Down Deep." That's the one that I'm going to be covering today in this episode. Um, I recently finished reading it, and this this book is. Uh, it's called Dug Down Deep, 
unearthing what I believe and why it matters. And this was, uh, I think, published in 2010. And so, yeah, looks like it was way back in 2010. And there's some really alarming stuff in here. I'm going to I'm going to talk about that and kind of kind of discuss it. And this is what this is what concerns me when there's so many people that are that are try to be quick to discuss things uh, in the on the Christian podcast and without really doing some research and sometimes the answers that they give they can be helpful but they're not they're they're almost always incomplete and they're almost always leaving out crucial information that really kind of informs as to why Josh is where he is now and so. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a lot of the so I read through the book I'm I made a lot of notes throughout and I'm gonna just, just kind of bring up some things that that really stood out to me and so um, I, I I've listened to Todd Friel James White um, and a handful of others I think uh, talking about this they did say some things that were that that were helpful some some there was an interesting. Uh, thing that that I was kind of wrestling with in terms of how you know that he is truly an apostate and not just maybe temporarily lapsing um, if he really did abandon the faith or if he's just kind of lapsing and so you know if there's a, a window uh, of time that we should give but from from what has been going on with Josh and the announcements he was he's been making it doesn't seem like he's coming back so so let's let's dive into the book. Um, the book is basically kind of a, a sort of spiritual journey that that Josh took. It's it's kind of like his um, his uh, his spiritual upbringing and his and his his theological trek to where he got at that point, and the changes he made, the adjustments that he made along the way, and it's also. Um, at the same time, it's kind of a, an overview of, of major Christian doctrines. It's sort of like a basic overview of, of major Christian doctrines. And so there, he, he reveals a lot. He reveals a lot about himself and a lot about what he believes and, <clears throat> and what he teaches in this book. It's, a, it's, it's why, it's why I, I read it. And mainly because it's, I think, one of the only books. If Yeah, it's one of the few books that I have. Uh, by him I, I i never i have my wife actually had i kissed dating goodbye and but she never she never read that book which ironically um i as far as i've been able to tell i think i would agree with many of the principles in that book about uh court courting and and you know a proper biblical view of dating even though it seems like he's been he actually recalled that book and now is i guess um uh, going, he he doesn't agree with what he said in that book. But ironically, I think I would agree with many of with the principles that he's trying to put forth there. But I haven't read it yet, so I won't necessarily comment on that too much. Um, so back to the this this his his book here, the dug down deep. It got a lot of interesting um, endorsements. Uh, one of them was by Joni Erickson Tata, and uh, she's the I think a quadriplegic. Uh, she has. She's on a wheelchair, and she has. She's wrestled through a lot of different diseases, and and I think even cancer. And so she gave an endorsement. Uh, Donald Miller was another one. He's the author of Blue Like Jazz, and 
Todd Friel gave an interesting pr- critique of this guy. I don't know anything about him, uh, but apparently he's a liberal. He's a he's a pretty he's a pretty liberal um, writer. And here's what he said. He says, "And dug down deep, my longtime friend Joshua Harris explains the basics of Christian theology in a way that we that all of us can understand." He is a humble man and teaches humbly. If you are tired of hype promises and want essential truth, this book is for you. As religious fads come and go, the truth in this book will last. So, uh, Todd Friel made the interesting point that your friends affect your faith. Uh, If you have bad company, you will be affected negatively, negatively by that. And he was suggesting that Donald Miller kind of may have pushed Josh in the direction that he's now in or, or had a lot to do with and, and, he, he said, like, this guy, he, he may have known him for a good while. And yes, that is that is what Miller himself says. He's a longtime friend of Josh. And this is this is back in 2010. So it's been a, it's he's known him for a while, obviously. But I don't know much about him, so I can't really comment too much on that. And of course, it was also endorsed by none other than none other than John Piper himself. And uh, D- Piper, uh, Keller. A lot of these names, the Gospel Coalition, a lot of these are very popular in Sovereign Grace Ministries churches. And that's how I basically learned, d- discovered all of these guys. It was through the Sovereign Grace Ministries church that I used to attend. And um, so that they, a lot, these, kind, these birds tend to flock together a lot. And another, another it was also endorsed by J.I. Packer and um, even Mark Dever. Mark Dever, it was uh, endorsed by Lecrae, the rapper, the, the Christian rapper guy, who I, I will probably have to do a future episode on him because I think he's definitely not sound at all. Um, but but anyway, yeah, there, so he got some, even an, even an endorsement by Ted Slater as well, who is, uh, he's the editor of boundless.org and he apparently works for focus on the family so he got some pretty glowing endorsements for this book it's um it's a very sort of honest he's very honest in the book he talks about a lot of his struggles his sin struggles and kind of things that he went through but um i'm going to cover some of the some some other points here that i wanted to to get into so one of the one of the things that stood out to me as well is that he he evidently grew up in a a secret sensitive worldly uh, he he says parallel universe of the youth ministry. So let me go to that page. Yeah, so that he he says here, I found my sense of identity and, and community in the parallel uni- universe of the youth ministry. So this he he's actually kind of pointing out the fact that he grew up in a very um, worldly and not very spiritually minded uh, youth ministry and this is one something that I've 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 long for for a good while now I've been convicted about about youth ministries and children's church and those kinds of things um, they're basically a breeding ground for prodigals it, it, it's a breeding ground for creating prodigals and it's it's happened in my own church um, they they don't do children's ministry anymore, but they used to back when they were Calvary Chapel, and there's sadly some some stories, some very sad stories about uh, some of the some of the parents 
in the church that whose whose uh, children grew up and they ended up not wanting to come back to church and um, a lot of that they they say was also they can tell was from the uh, having this youth ministry and not really taking the the not really rather than equipping parents to disciple their kids and to and to take teach them the bible and to take it seriously um youth ministry can oftentimes and, and i think in the vast majority of cases really just destroys their faith ironically but um yeah so that here on on page eight on page eight he says some interest he has an interesting comment here he says Sad to say, I spent more time studying Michael Jackson's dance moves for that drama assignment than I was ever asked to invest in studying about God. Of course, this was primarily my own fault. I was doing what I wanted to do. There were other kids in the youth group who were more mature and who grew more spiritually during their youth group stint. And I don't doubt the good intentions of my youth pastor. He was trying to strike the balance between getting kids to attend and teaching them. Maybe I wouldn't have been interested in youth group if it hadn't been packaged in fun and games and a good hand. But I still wish someone had expected more of me, of all of us. Would I have listened? I can't know. But I do know that a clear vision of God and the power of his word and the purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were lost on me in the midst of all the flash and fun. So I think that's an interesting comment there. I think it really sums up a lot of youth ministry, that it's more geared towards flash, fun, babysitting, and keeping kids' attention without necessarily teaching them and catechizing them. And so... Um, that was some interesting comments that he made there regarding that. And the book wasn't all bad. He does have some very good things to say in some of the chapters. For example, he does affirm that knowledge is good, that truth truth itself should ground emotion and not vice versa, that we should seek truth and not emotional experiences. And um, he has a very solid bibliology or an understanding of the Bible, uh, how to understand uh, scripture, the inspiration of scripture. He has a very solid view on that. He had a good chapter on that. However, there there was here's where we have some some problems start to creep in. So on page nineteen of the book, he talks about being a Christian rather than living the Christian life. So if we go to page nineteen here, so I'm going to read a quote at the end of the page here. He, he says, "Being a Christian means being a person who labors to establish his beliefs." his dreams, his choices, his very view of the world on the truth who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, a Christian who cares about truth, who cares about sound doctrine. So this, and this may have just been the wording that was maybe a little bit off, but he, he says being a Christian means being a person who labors to establish with his beliefs. So he, he's talking about, really he's talking about the Christian life, but being a Christian you know, what makes a Christian is believing the gospel, not laboring to establish your life according to uh, sound doctrine. It's that's that comes after that sanctification. So that the the phrase there, just being a Christian, that kind of you, you know maybe maybe that's what he meant, but it, it kind of raised raised an eyebrow at first. Maybe it would have been clear if he had said living the Christian life rather than being a Christian, because what makes you a Christian is not your life, it's it's your belief in Christ. And so um, there, there's kind of a, a, subtle, a subtle distinction there that I think it would have been better for him to say, uh, 
living the Christian life, which it sounds like what he meant, but um, something that something to consider there. So he does he does also do a good job of emphasizing the entirety of Scripture, Toda Scriptura, um, that that we should consider the whole Bible and not pe- parts and pieces that that we like or that we're only the ones that we can understand and things like that. He does emphasize. He has a good emphasis on. Um, so here he he says. When Jesus talks about the person who listens to his words, he's referring to more than just the red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All scripture is the word of God. It's all Jesus speaking to us. So that's a good, that was a very solid point that he made there. Um, so he has, but then again, right after that, he does have another, another sort of troubling phrase here where he says, but the hardest work of all is putting the truth into practice. That's what Jesus pinpointed in his story, and it's the focus of the preceding verses in Luke 6. Truth requires action. Coming to him, calling him Lord, and knowing his words can never be enough. Church affiliation and a list of beliefs are never enough. Doctrine and theology are always meant to be applied to our lives, to shape and reshape not only a statement of faith, but also practical decisions of how we think and act. Book knowledge about building on rock has no value if we're still resting on shifting sand. So this, the phrase here that I was um, concerned about is church affiliation and a list of beliefs are never enough. And this was kind of what it was never enough for what? Like what? What is he talking about? Is he talking about salvation? Because obviously that that, I mean, you know, uh, he's kind of sort of undermining in a sense belief a list of beliefs which is what the gospel is is a list of propositional truths about christ and about his death and his resurrection and the fact that he died for our sins so um that is enough that is enough to make you a christian that is enough to to save you um but he doesn't necessarily make that clear and so you can kind of be you can kind of take away sort of a, a wrong impression there um again it seems like he's talking about the Christian life in general, but I just thought that could have been that could have been a little bit clearer on his part. So he also he also talks about Pentecostalism and fame, and um, he 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 has some interesting stuff to say about that as well. So here he makes a um, he he sort of talks about one of the transitions that he made, a crucial transition that he made in his spiritual journey. He says, I had merely gone from theology light, seeker-sensitive evangelicalism to theology light, experience-driven Pentecostalism. So the first, the first movement or the first evangelicalism, the theology light part is the, where he grew up in that children's church, that youth ministry that was very shallow and superficial. He didn't get much out of it. And so he, he then says, he talks about how he jumped over to more experience-driven Pentecostalism. And um, it, it was some interesting stuff about the uh, discussion that he gets into there, and and learning how he goes, how he learns the imbalances in both of those the both of those movements, and so then he, he also he also talks about how he he ended up transitioning into more solid grounding um, on on better theology uh, specifically when he was introduced to cj mahaney 
who at the time was leading Covenant Life Church in Maryland. And he says this, but he didn't. So he, he's talking about C.J. Mahaney. He didn't reference the popular Christian bestsellers with which I was so impressed. Instead, he quoted men like J.I. Packer, Sinclair Ferguson, John Stott, and D.A. Carson. He talked about and quoted long since dead pastors and theologians like Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Watson, and John Calvin, as though they were still living personal friends. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century London pastor whose preaching an example of gospel proclamation inspired C.J., was his historical hero. John Owen was his tutor on the doctrine of sin. So that he, there he kind of gives um, some background as to what, why he admires or admired C.J. so much um, as he was be starting to become a more uh, serious Christian. So, so there, there, was, there was some good stuff there. Um, however, so there was something else that concerned me, which was the issue of, um, the, the, and this is not specific to Josh. The, this is a common, I think, misconception where people, or people tend to describe physical relationships with Jesus um, you know, it, it's not belief in a creed, but trusting in a person, that kind of dichotomy. It's a sort of false, false dichotomy that's very popular in evangelicalism. And he makes a pretty stark dichotomy here. He's on page 30. He says, this has to be the first and final motivation. Pursuing orthodoxy and sound doctrine has to begin with a heart drawing close to Jesus, not to a theological system, denomination or book. Which again, Jesus equates his teaching with himself. So it, it's a false dichotomy to say it's not a system. Well, yeah, it's a system that Christ taught. It's the teaching of Christ that draws you to him. So that's, that's a false dilemma there that he's presenting, but he goes on. It's easy to make the mistake of thinking that since theological belief shouldn't be our goal, we don't need them at all. But this isn't true in, in knowing Jesus any more than it's true in other relationships. For example, I have a nine-year-old daughter named Emma, whom I love very much. It is absolutely true that information and facts about my daughter can never take the place of actually knowing her. But this doesn't mean that I should avoid knowing about her. An important part of caring for and cultivating a relationship with my little girl involves my willingness to, know, to learn about her character and personality, her likes and dislikes. Details about her, the color of her hair, the music she enjoys, her gifts, fears, and dreams are all important to me because she is important to me. These truths about her could be empty data, but because they describe a living person whom I love, they enrich and grow my love for her. Facts can never take her place, but I can't know her without them. And the problem with this, of course, is that Jesus, we, we are not in a flesh and blood relationship with Jesus. So making these analogies are very harmful to our understanding of how we relate to Christ, because we have a real relationship with Christ, of course, but it's primarily driven through prayer and the word. And so we don't have we don't have a physical relationship with him where we can hang out with him and see who we, you know, talk and and, and talk to him just like, um, interact with him just like we do with anybody else that's, that's a human. And so that makes the relationship considerably different in how we interact with God. And so it's primarily should be driven by the word and by his teaching. And so it's, it's similar to the, the analogy, the popular analogy I've heard by preachers like uh, Ray Comfort. They say it's not enough to believe that the parachute will save you. You have to put it on in order for it to save you. And that, again, is the problem. And Gordon Clark does a brilliant job of, of breaking this down and showing the inconsistencies 
and I think his book on religion, reason, and revelation. So he, it, it's it's a very problematic way of presenting how we believe the gospel because it's all intellectual. Believing the gospel is an intellectual act. It's not something that's physical in the sense that you have to put something on physically. You simply understand the gospel and then you agree with it. That's all what saving faith entails. And so these descriptions of physical relationships with with Christ can be very, very problematic because they tend to break down and they don't actually correlate. And so that was an, another concern there, but it's not, this was not so much the more of the serious concerns, but he, he, he does, so he, he does also say some, some good things again. He says, he talks about how doctrine is, is essential. And so he, he has here on page 31, he says, J. Gresham Machen, who, who wrote in the early part of the 20th century, helped me better understand all this. He, his explanation of Christian doctrine helped me see how it connects to the living person of Jesus. In one of his books, Machen explains that while Christians in the early church wanted to know what Jesus taught, they were primarily concerned with what Jesus had done. Quote, the world was to be redeemed, Machen writes, through the proclamation of an event. End of quote. Of course, the event he's referring to is Jesus' death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. The first Christians knew they had to tell people about this event. But simply telling them wasn't enough. They also had to tell them what the event meant. And this, Machen explains, is doctrine. So that was an excellent discussion on, on doctrine. That is exactly what doctrine is. It's giving meaning and, and explanation and, and tying together the events, some of the events that have unfolded, such as Christ's death, his resurrection. What do those events mean and how do they uh, pertain to us? And so that was an excellent discussion regarding that. That was very good. Um, th th and so he, he continues quoting Machen here. These two elements are always combined in the Christian message. Machen continues. The narration of facts is history. The narration of the facts with the meaning of the facts is doctrine. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That is history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. So that was very good. I, I really... I got I got a lot out of that that discussion that was very helpful. So, so there were some other other things that that stood out. So he he here's the one of the first more concerning things that he said and it it's on page 32. So here he says, "And in both cases, knowing and living by sound doctrine are of utmost importance. Why? Because on the final day only those who have believed in Jesus Christ and live for him will be rescued from the wrath of God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that part again. Because on the final day, only those who have believed in Jesus Christ and live for him will be rescued from the wrath of God. So that sentence, that's just flat out false like that's that is work salvation and that's very concerning because what rescues us from the wrath of god is trusting in christ alone not believing in christ and living for him our lives count for nothing with respect to earning god's pardon christ has fulfilled that completely 
So that right there, already, you know, in page 32 of the book, and it was, if you see the endorsements, it was endorsed by all these people, and that's why I think we have to be very careful with endorsements, because maybe the authors don't, maybe the endorsers don't read the book very carefully, or whatever the case may be, but it, it just, it, it makes things worse in a way, because this is a patently false teaching. I mean, and it's very similar to what you hear today from men like John Piper, who say that we have to have, we have to present inherent, our inherent righteousness and our good works on the final judgment as forensic evidence in order to be allowed into heaven. This is basically the same thing. And so it's extremely concerning, except here, Josh Harris is talking about removing the wrath of God. So this is even worse to some extent because it's just what saves us from the wrath of God is faith alone in Christ alone. That's that's basic Protestantism 101. So there you already see the the problem that Josh is is having with articulating even basic Protestantism. Uh, this is just flat out false. Te this is more Roman Catholic than Protestant. And so that was extremely alarming, and it's not even the worst of it, uh, unfortunately. And he does continue to say some good things as well. There's just kind of like some good and bad stuff on the way. Um, he, but he does make some good points about knowing God truly, that we can know God truly. We, we, he, he's not, he does not express sort of these sort of Vantillian notions of, uh, of, of, not being able to 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 know God truly in the sense, you know, just because we can't know him exhaustively doesn't mean that we can't know what God knows and know God himself truly. And so he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't retreat in that sort of, a, you know, weird sort of Protestant mysticism, that, that irrational kind of, um, that view that says that we can't know God um, because we can. We absolutely can know God through his word primarily through his word and so and he and he affirms that he affirms that in the book very clearly now this next part i do want to talk about a little bit because it's an important issue that i've noticed in several in several um it's it's a very prominent understanding a way of looking at uh god and there's this issue of transcendence and imminence. And so he, uh, Josh talks about that. He talks about that in his book as well. It, it comes up a lot, actually. And so he says something like this. He, he says things like this. He says, on page 41, he says, I behold a God who is utterly and wonderfully different from me. And so here you say, you see him, um, he's he's ex, he's um, expressing the doctrine of of transcendence, which is the belief that the belief that God is, you know, God is qualitatively different from us, and he, he even says utterly different. He says God is utterly different from me, and and how God is not like us. And um, I'm trying to find his uh, definition of transcendence here. So here he says, on page 42, he says, um, 
he quotes Wayne Grudem, it is not just what, that we exist and God has always existed, writes Wayne, Grudem, writes Wayne Grudem. Quote, it is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a can the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. So the and and then uh, Josh continues the qualitative difference of God is his otherliness revealed in his divine attributes, is summed up in the word holy. So, and this was interesting. He he um, he, he he talks about R.C. Sproul here. He says, I used to think of God's holiness only in terms of moral purity. But R.C. Sproul taught me that holiness primarily speaks of God's being separate from his creation and his perfection and power. God's holiness means that, that he is transcendent, that he exceeds all limitations. That God is holy mean that God is holy means that He is above and beyond us. Quote, when the Bible calls God holy, writes Sproul, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. Which again is is kind of concerning coming from somebody like Sproul, who is, is generally a sound, a more sound uh, theologian, but. Here, the, the, the issue of the transcendence is defined as he exceeds all limitations. And so, the, the reason this is concerning is because God is not utterly different from us. That's, that's actually not true. And the, the, the issue becomes that the way people try to balance this out, the, the transcendence of God is with the imminence of God. And so, typically, what you'll see in some theological books, and I, I remember reading this in, in uh, I believe it was 20th Century Theology by Stanley Grenz, where uh, he uses this, this frame of reference of transcendence and imminence to kind of describe a, a lot of, uh, I think, movements in church history and a historical, historical theology as well. And so... Um, so people tend to pair those two as if they were bookend doctrines. That God is utterly different from us, but he is also utterly near to us. That's what imminence means. It means that God is near. God is God is near to us. We don't have to search him out by climbing at the top of the highest mountain or whatever. Uh he is he is near and he is he, he and he listens. He is not detached from us. And so um I'm gonna try to see if I can find uh, some of the some of the his discussion on on imminence. So yeah, so here here I'm gonna I'll read this yeah, on page 45. He says God is different from you and me. He is utterly different, and that is utterly wonderful. There is surprising comfort in the realization that God is so unlike you and me. The fact that He's not like us is the reason we can run to Him for rescue. So here he's saying, and then he continues, God is not like us. He's strong. He's unchanging. His love is steadfast. He is full of mercy, and he does what we would never do, what we would never imagine. He dies for his enemies. Uh, quote, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. And there he's kind of getting more into the issue of, uh, of, of imminence. So yeah, on page 49, he says, he says this, 
the incredible reality that the God who, quote, inhabits eternity and who is holy and transcendent, that is, totally separate and different from us, is also the God who draws close to men and women who are contrite and humble before him. God is imminent. He is near. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. So, here you see, and this is very typical, this is extremely common in sort of evangelical theology and uh, even Protestant theology, even Reformed theology. Um, I remember in our church did a study, uh, the study called Behold, Behold Your God, and it was generally a, a very good study. It, it is a good study, but there was this issue came up as well, and they did a very poor job. I think I think they did a very poor job of of explaining this doctrine that the transcendence of God. You have to be very careful when you're talking about God and how different He is, because if you say that God is utterly different from us, then that completely undermines the doctrine of Imago Dei. That the fact that we are the image that where we are not only are we made in the image of God, but uh, it's like. Um, uh, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, it says that man is the image of the invisible God. So, we are not utterly different from God. That is, that, that's just a false statement. That, that's not true. We are, in fact, the creatures that are most like Him. And that is exactly what the Imago Dei means. It means that we are, man is the image of God. And so, I'm trying to pull up the verse here. So I can so I can read read it exactly, and this was something that I really appreciated uh, learning from Clark, uh, who who has a he has a much much more balanced view of this because people tend to say that God is so different and that's why we can't know Him that God is so different and that's why uh, we can't relate to Him we can't know Him we can't understand Him and all of these things but in reality that's completely undermining the fact that. Um, that uh, God made us in His image. So 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, For a man at, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. He is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. So, it's not only are we made in the image of God, man is the image of God. And that's something... That's extremely important to emphasize, and this is how you you counteract or you 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 balance the the doctrine of transcendence. A, a lot of people think that if you, that you balance the doctrine of transcendence with the doctrine of imminence, and that's actually not that's actually not true. And it's usually when that happens, you end up having an over exaggerated or an, a, an extreme view of transcendence, where you say God is utterly different from us, when the Bible is in fact saying that we are the creatures that are most like God, because man is the image of God and glory of God. It's extremely important to keep that in mind. You balance the doctrine of transcendence with the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that we are the creatures that mostly, more closely, most, most resemble God. So, we are not, in fact, that far away from God in that sense, because we are the image of God, that man and woman is the image of God. And so, that's just an important point to keep in mind there. You, it's a, this is so common, you know, it's common with so many systematic theologies, and it, it's unfortunate because it's really not, it's not correct to say that. that, that the fact that God is near, um, yes, that is true. God is imminent as well. 
but it, it doesn't, in fact, it's not the counterpoint, it's not the bookend balance doctrine of transcendence. So just wanted to, uh, to throw that out there because it is very common. That's a very common misunderstanding of, of transcend, even, of, even Sproul apparently, uh, went a little too far in that area. So the next thing I wanted to bring up is, um, he, he, Josh quotes a, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd Jones, Sally Lloyd Jones. And, um, I had heard, I thought I had remembered listening to some, some criticisms about the book that they had some, it had some problematic, uh, teachings. And it's a book for children, I think. Yeah, it's, a, it's meant to be a book for children. And I, I don't remember where I have to. I'll have to try to dig up the uh, the resource. It might have been Theology Gals or uh, something like that. That that was um, a, pointing out some serious issues in that that book. But he quotes he he quotes the book um, pertaining to basically a description of what the Bible is and isn't. And so he quotes Lloyd Jones saying this. Sally Lloyd-Jones, not Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, she says this, But the Bible isn't mainly about what about you and what you should be doing. Um, and then later on she says, No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. So she's trying to emphasize, obviously, that it's not primarily a rule book, which is kind of hard to... It's a little hard to, to reconcile that with the 613 commands of the Bible in the Old Testament and with the numerous commands in the New Testament as well and at the end of just about every letter. So it's, it's, um, it, it's, the, the Bible is definitely a rule book. I mean, it's not just a rule book, but it is definitely substantially a rule book. I mean, it, it talks a whole bunch of outlaw and you can't even begin to understand grace without the law so that's not really i don't think that's a good way of describing um the bible itself and so yeah and it's kind of interesting because uh, josh himself almost seems to contradict that very the very view that that the bible is not a rule book because uh later on and so on page 66 he says this the Bible has limited value as merely an esoteric, spiritually inspiring book of ancient wisdom. It was given to be obeyed and lived. So that would mean that it is a rule book after all. Um, and, and so he said, he continues, Josiah let the word of God reform him. He ripped his robes, a visual symbol that said, I'm the one who needs to change. He didn't twist God's words to fit his agenda. He let God's words reshape his life. So there he kind of, seems to almost contradict himself by quoting Sally Lowe Jones. And he does, however, at the end of the chapter on page 72, attempt to reconcile this. Um, he says, The Bible, it's not a list of rules and guidelines that we must follow perfectly in order to earn our way into God's favor. The Bible is the story of what he has done. It's the story of how every man-made effort at salvation fails and only the grace of God can rescue and redeem sinners. Too often we read the Bible the way A.J. Jacobs did when he attempted to spend a year, quote, living biblically. We read it and look for all the things we have to do, and while there are things God commands us to do, we first need to read the Bible looking 
at all he has done for us. It's the story of his champion, his son, who came to die for us. And I guess, I guess I can see what he's saying there. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's a little bit, mis, It's I think it's very misleading to say that the Bible is not a rule book because it is a substantial amount of the Bible is, is all about rules and about obeying and about the punishment for obeying or disobeying God. So um, I don't think you can sort of write that off as just saying it's not really a rule book. And even though I understand that he's saying, you know, that it's the, the, the fact that it is a rule book, it, it, the primary focus of the Bible is the fact that you are utterly incompetent on your own, uh, on your own to earn your salvation. You simply cannot do it at all. And you need a savior. That's the whole reason we need Christ and, and, and so on and so forth. But, um, that I think is also very, it could be, it could, it, it has done a lot of damage in the church to, to underemphasize the role of the law in, in, in every aspect of, of the Christian, uh, of Christianity from in the church, in the gospel, in, uh, in a lot of, th it, it relates to just about everything, every major doctrine in the Bible, God's justice, etc., etc. So, so moving on to the next uh, topic here that I wanted to, uh, th th this was a little bit more of a sad irony. The reason I say that is because Josh actually talks about apostasy to some extent, at some length in the book as well. And on page 67, he says this, uh, Jeremiah 36:24 states, Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. It's a chilling picture of blatant disregard for God and his word. And the contrast between Josiah and his son, and his son Jehoiakim couldn't be more clear. Josiah tore his robes, jo Jehoiakim cut up the words of God. Josiah was penitent, Je Jehoiakim was cold-hearted. Josiah reformed his life after hearing God's words, Jehoiakim burned God's words. The young woman sitting in my office was burning God's word as she heard it and refused to obey it. And this is pretty sad because you can almost say this applies to Josh in both senses now, you know, he, he, he used to have a, a, a longing and a desire to obey God, resembled by Josiah, and then now he's just the complete opposite, on the opposite end of this as Jehoiakim, with the description of cutting up the words of God and being cold-hearted, and even the description he gives of the young woman that he was counseling, uh, sitting in his office, that who was burning God's word as she heard it and refused to obey. Um, it's pretty... It's it's kind of unnerving to see that that contrast that he he now officially uh, would basically apply to himself as an apostate. But um, he says the most common way people cut and burn God's word is to strip it of the qualities it claims for itself, and that is actually a good point. That is that is true. That is a that is very true, but pretty pretty disturbing to see how that applies to him now and th there's there's some other issues that uh that come up that we're getting through the end of this here and um there there was a, a very prominent and a very important issue that's tied to this work salvation concept um he also talks about faith and repentance 
um, uh, in throughout the book and specifically on page 136 he says this the Bible teaches that we must respond to the gospel in repentance and faith Acts 319 most of us understand the faith part we trust that what Jesus did was for us and we entrust our lives to him but we often overlook the repentance part to repent means to turn away from something to renounce it genuine repentance involves a sorrow over sin as an offense for God against God so there you see how he he's basically giving a very clear works definition of repentance and that's very problematic because he's saying that repentance is basically necessary for salvation and it's a it's a more lordship view it's more of a lordship view of salvation that that kind of defines repentance it really gets into the shaky ground of defining repentance as this outward an outward reaction or an outward um, response that really gets can get people into a lot of trouble and this is where you see a lot of the problems with the lordship uh, lordship salvation view that macarthur and um and those who agree with him uh, do and and he continues a little further down he says repentance and faith are inseparable two sides of the same coin when people are genuinely converted they don't simply turn away from sin and bad behavior they turn toward the person of jesus christ and his lordship so there you see that phrase when people are genuinely converted they don't simply turn away from sin and bad behavior and you never fully turn away from sin and bad behavior as a Christian, even as a Christian. And so it's very dangerous to define repentance this way and making it, you know, because he's giving the traditional definition of conversion as repentance and faith. And so he's defining repentance as turning away from sin, which is what a lot, which is what the vast, overwhelming majority of evangelicalism teaches. And it's just, it's wrong. It's just flat wrong. Um, and, and I'm grateful to, uh, Clark's work on this as well. Gordon Clark's work on, he has a, I highly recommend you, if you haven't read his book, uh, What is Saving Faith? It's an excellent treatment of this subject. And the fact that repentance is simply a change of mind. That's all it is. It's not a turning away from sin. It's not a work. It's not, uh, turning from bad behavior and from sin. Like that's, 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 impossible even for a christian to do in this life fully and so it's it, this bleeds into a lot of he has a very distinctly uh, lordship salvation understanding of repentance and it's very problematic um and, and it's problematic in in a, the, the overwhelming majority of of churches evangelical churches that teach that you know repentance is a turning away from sin because it's it's really not and it's it's very problematic to say that because it's basically you're making repentance a work, and now you're saying well works are required for for to 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 um to be saved. And later on in the book, Josh gets even even more explicit uh, when he's talking about repentance. On page one sixty eight, he says, Martin Luther said that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Repentance isn't just for getting saved. So there, he's clearly telling you 
that he's talking about you need to repent in order to be saved in the first place. It should be, he continues, it should be a normal, even daily part of the Christian's life. We are going to sin in a multitude of ways every day. Repentance is simply agreeing with God about sin, turning away from it, and accepting the redeeming grace of God through the cross. So there, you see again, it's 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 just not consistent. It's very inconsistent to say that you it's a turning away from sin, and yet you still need to do that as a Christian. And so, it's very problematic. Again, so you can't you can't make that a requirement for being saved. The only requirement for salvation is believing in Christ and Christ alone. Um, repentance is the 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 conviction and sorrow for sin can come it it can come before or after that it it typically does in many situations uh people start feeling the conviction of sin and and God uses that and leads them to to but that's typically also this is also typically preceding regeneration because you don't even begin to understand the gravity and the weight of your sin and how much of an offense it is to God until typically until God first regenerates you so that's that basically comes after the fact and it's not a requirement to for you to turn away from your sin from bad behavior as Josh puts it in order to be saved that's just not accurate that's very problematic and in the last chapter of the book on page 227 he also says the Bible tells us that only those who trusted in Jesus Christ, who turned from sin and believed in Him, will be in God's presence. So there, again, you have to be, that's just false. You, you should not be, that sounds like, that, that sounds like a work that's required for believers, to, for, for people to do in order to get right with God, and that's just not the case. So he doesn't, he doesn't do a very good, and this again tends to be typical of popular evangelicalism, but it's, it's just coming, he's supposed to be coming from a more reformed perspective, but this, this really does resemble more of a, a lordship understanding, a lordship salvation, uh, uh view, which is again, there, there's so many problems with that. And we never fully finished talking about that. We sort of, uh, we sort of moved on to other things, but I do, I still very much want to come back to that, and we've had some feedback and some requests on uh, continuing to talk about Lordship Salvation and, and Assurance and all of those related uh, doctrines to to faith and repentance and, and, and all of those things, how they relate and understanding them in light of what the Bible teaches consistently. I do still, hopefully, Lord willing, in the future, uh, plan to talk about those things in, in, in more detail. But to kind of go back to some some of the good things that Josh does does say in the book he, he does I like a he gave a very good definition of what a Christian is on uh, page 39 he quotes uh, Sinclair Ferguson actually no I'm sorry he quotes J.I. Packer He's, he says what is a Christian asked J.I. Packer the question can be answered in many ways but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father and Sinclair Ferguson writes, You cannot open the pages of the New Testament without realizing that the one of the things that makes it so new in every way is that here men and women call God Father. This conviction that we can speak to the maker of the universe 
in such intimate terms lies at the heart of the Christian faith. So I thought that was actually a really, a really good uh, way of summing up what it is to be a Christian. That is an excellent way to put it. Because when you become a Christian, you become adopted into the household of God. And that, that is, you have, you receive a new legal status as a son of God, as a, um, a joint heir with Christ and all of the benefits that, that come with that. So that, I thought that was very good. Um, so, so now jumping over to the bad again. Um, so he quotes Grudem on sanctification. And I remember reading this in Grudem Systematic Theology, but he says on page 49, Josh says, the questions surrounding how Christians deal with sin, obey God, and become more holy all relate to something that Scripture calls sanctification. That is the ongoing process of change that begins the moment a person is saved and continues until that person's last breath. Sanctification is the journey of becoming holy, becoming like God. Wayne Grudem defines sanctification as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And so... That's a little problematic because it's not really our work in the same sense that it's God's work because it's primarily God's work. And yes, we do have to play a part in our sanctification because what the things that we do are either conducive to sanctification or, or conducive to sin. And so if we don't do certain things, we won't be sanctified. And if we do certain things, we will be sanctified, such as going to church and attending sound biblical preaching and praying and reading the Bible. All of those things increase our sanctification because they are means by which we receive the word of God and the truth of God. And that's what actually sanctifies us, not the work itself, not the actual work of reading the Bible. But it's it's the means in the sense that the Spirit uses that to, to edify and to build us up and to sanctify us and conform us into Christ, which is really pretty much God's work. It's God's it's primarily, fundamentally God's work because it's His Spirit driving us. It's His Spirit that's edifying us and sanctifying us. And it's the truth of God that is also sanctifying us. And we are merely doing things that are conducive to that. Um, so we do have to play a part, but it's not, it's not a synergistic way of, of, it's not a synergistic, um, enterprise. It's, it's, that, that's not a good way to describe it. So then, one last, uh, a couple of final things here. Um, he also gives a, a pretty full treatment of the flesh. And some of it was, was pretty good. But what really struck me was that he, he actually teaches that in the book that the flesh he makes a complete distinction and separation from the uh, the flesh and the body. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, he says, so on page 156, he says, this is the flesh. He's kind of Jabba the Hutt meets WWE wrestler. The flesh represents the sinful, corrupted desires of our hearts. It's not a reference to our bodies. Our bodies are created by God and are good. And though my cartoon can't do this justice, the flesh isn't something outside us or just a part of us. It's who we are apart from Christ. The flesh represents our sinful cravings to live for ourselves and disobey God's laws and commands. Romans 7.18 So here you see him, he says, It's not a reference to our bodies. Our bodies are created by God and are good. 
So he's saying that our bodies are good, which and which actually is a uh, undermines the doctrine of radical depravity, because radical depravity says that there is no part of us that is not corrupted by sin, and so he, here he again it's just it's a basic sort of misunderstanding of something so basic to to the Christian life, and it, it is it's concerning that it doesn't seem like people have have pointed this out or brought this out um especially not now when they're talking about his apostasy because they, they tend to talk a lot about his other book on the, on the I kiss dating goodbye but this is where he's really laying out what he's what he believes and here this is very clearly undermining and going against the doctrine of total depravity there is no part of us including our bodies that is not uh corrupted by sin and therefore bad it's it's our bodies are not good and the bible says that it's our it's our vile bodies these are and paul even says in chapter 7 wretched man wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death it is not a good thing that's why we're going to receive a new body that is a glorified body um, that is like christ's body our current body is not good it's bad and it is the flesh that's the that's another problem that Josh, and a lot of people, uh, I've heard a lot of people make this mistake as well, like John MacArthur. And I, I want to talk about this more fully in a, in a future episode with dealing with Romans 7 and things like that. But the, the flesh is fundamentally the body. It is the only part of us that is yet to be redeemed. And that is why we still sin. We still sin because our bodies have not been redeemed yet. And we are our our spirits are regenerated our spirits are redeemed so we are good on that camp the spirit is good the body is still bad and that is why we still sin because when we receive a new glorified body we will no longer sin and the only reason we still sin today is because we are still in our unredeemed bodies corrupted bodies by sin and so that's very problematic again to say the least especially with how you understand sanctification and mortifying the flesh and which is which if you have to mortify your flesh that implies that itself implies that it's bad and that you have to restrain it and restrain it from sin but again it's the problem of of making these distinctions that that are not biblical and separating them way too much from the physical body itself and so uh, the next couple of things here he talks about he also talks about confronting false teaching towards the end of the book in page 222 he quotes second timothy 223 to 26 which says have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will so he continues, Josh says, uh, I find these words amazing in light of Paul's circumstances. He's about to die. He sees false teachers working to destroy the church. He has been betrayed and abandoned. You would expect him to say, nuke the heretics and don't worry about civilian casualties. But he doesn't. Instead he says, don't be a jerk. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't get sidetracked on secondary issues. Be kind. Be patient. When other people are evil, endure it while trusting in God. And here's the other one. When you need to correct someone, do it with gentleness. So, 
this is failing to take into account what the whole counsel of God. Because, you know, he says, you would expect him to say, nuke the heretics and don't worry about civilian casualties. Well, of course, Paul would never say that. He would never say nuke them and don't worry about casualties. That that's That's kind of ridiculous. But Paul does say that he wishes that the uh, Judaizers would emasculate themselves. And I would ask, I mean, that's just a common, I would ask you, do you think that's a nice thing to say? Um, and he's saying to correct people with gentleness. And it's like, that, that's not Paul. The apostles did not, Jesus himself did not always correct people with gentleness. So, in fact, Jesus fiercely condemned religious hypocrites like the Pharisees and things like, and people like that. So, and Paul, again, with the Judaizers, he said he wishes that they would emasculate themselves. That's not a nice thing to say to someone. That's a very serious and strong indictment against them. And so, uh, in, in, even in, again, in Galatians, he says, Peter, uh, Paul says, anybody who preaches a, cause, a gospel contrary to the one that they have received from, from, from them is anathema. And the word anathema means eternally condemned. It means finally condemned. So that's not a nice thing to say to someone. You know, that's, that's, I think it's, uh, this is very problematic. So this is part of the fundamental conviction that Josh has in the final chapter called Humble Orthodoxy. And it was one of the chapters that um, the pastor of the church that we were at when we were talking about Keller assigned to us he had given us to read and uh, uh, regarding how to deal with opposition and things like that but again the, the situation that Paul is quote that is dealing is dealing with in second Timothy does not apply to all scenarios it does not apply to people like the Judaizers and wolves the the wolves need to be exposed and they need to be fiercely condemned and and kicked out of the church that's utterly clear in the bible so that does not apply in every circumstance and even though even when you know paul confronts peter he withstood him to his face and he gave him a sharp rebuke it was not gentle and it needed to be sharp because it, it the the gospel was at stake and so um titus 1 9 you know also says holding fast the faithful word that he as has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and rebuke those who contradict those who contradict it. So that word, uh, sometimes translated convict, uh, refute, um, in the Greek it's elenkein, which means literally means I repro to reprove, to rebuke, to expose, to show to be guilty. And that, so that's a strong word. And it, it's very uh, clearly, there are very clear scenarios in the Bible, like when Jesus confronts the Pharisees and Paul confronting Peter and um, false teachers that way, that it's just not, that's not what he's saying here is a, a very gross oversimplific oversimplification of how to deal with uh, opposition. And it's interesting because he also he also quotes um, Tim Keller when he's talking about sin on page 224. He says, 
In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says that all sin is attempting to find a sense of identity and meaning apart from God. Quote, so according to the Bible, he writes, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. So, and I point this out because we've talked about Keller before, and I still need to finish my article uh, about Keller, but this is um, a big problem with, so you would think that a Presbyterian, which is what pre uh, Tim Keller is, would just use the catechisms to define uh, what's in it because they're very clearly defined there. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sin is any lack of conformity to or a transgression of the law of God. That's a very clear definition. And Keller, instead of basing himself on that, bases himself in psychologizing and victimizing the sinner and his sin. And so... He says it's an that all sin is an, uh, is attempting to find a sense of identity and meaning apart from God, and and he even he goes on and he talks about how um, even making right theology an ultimate thing can be a bad thing, and he's talking about pride and demonizing people. And it's like, well, the problem there is pride. It's not theology is it is a main thing like that, that's that's utterly important theology is having a right understanding of christ that is the difference between hell and south and heaven so it's it's just kind of falsely dichotomizing and this is a big problem that keller has especially with how he psychologizes sin he victimizes the sinner by saying it's an you know it's an attempt to find a sense of identity uh, when in reality, sin is simply breaking God's law. It's any lack of conformity, or, or it's a sin of omitting uh, God's uh, commands, positive commands, or committing what God forbids. So, I mean, um, it's very simple, but um, these these people tend to overcomplicate and, and infuse false teaching into these basic um, doctrines, but... Uh, and to give him, to give Josh some credit, um, he does say on page 225, the solution to arrogant orthodoxy is not less orthodoxy, it's more. If we, if we truly know and embrace orthodoxy, it should humble us. When we know the truth about God, his power, his greatness, his holiness, his mercy, it doesn't leave us boasting. It, it doesn't leave us boasting. It leaves us amazed. It doesn't lead to a preoccupation with being right but to amazement that we've been rescued. And that, that is true. That is because people, when people often talk about this, they'll say, oh, well, knowledge makes you arrogant. So, so then what are you saying? Are you saying we should stop learning? We should, we should try to become stupid for Christ? They're like, that doesn't make any sense. You need to grow. The Bible explicitly says throughout the, all of the Bible to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, that we should be, um, that we should be infants in evil, but in understanding, we should be mature. And so those are very clear commands in the Bible that uh, knowledge is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And if something is getting in the way of that, it's usually another sin. It's pride. That's the issue. The issue is pride. It's not knowing something. It's not the knowledge itself. And so, um, but this brings me to the final issue 
that really is the it's kind of the the nail in the coffin i've i've tried to give i've tried to give a a a more comprehensive review of of josh's background and kind of to show uh leading up to why i come back to the title that i said of why did you know that josh harris abandons his shipwrecked faith and you can see he's clearly have he clearly has back in at least 2010 some serious problems in his understanding of basic christian doctrines like works and faith repentance and faith what salvation entails what it is all of those things you know going back to uh, page 32 where he says that only those who have believed in Jesus Christ and live for him will be rescued from the wrath of God. That is a just a flat out false statement that should have been corrected. Um, his pastors, CJ, you know, the elders at the church, they should have, somebody should have pointed this out to him. And it's sad that uh, it doesn't seem like it ever was. And um, this brings me to uh, the final a nail in the coffin where he talks about grace alone and that is on page 228 yeah on page 228 he says this so he's talking about how how we will react to everyone else to everybody else in heaven once we are once we as christians die we are in heaven and we're having these conversations with people around us so with the believers around us and he says at the end of every conversation we'll agree that when we were back on the old earth we really had no idea how unmerited that grace really is we called it grace but we didn't really think it was totally grace we thought we'd added just a tad of something good that we had earned just a bit we'll realize to our shame that the differing degrees we trusted in our intellect our morality the rightness of our doctrine and our religious performance when all along it was completely grace. So here you see this is just flat out disturbing that it is a patently, blatantly undermining of sola gratia. That is one of the main solas. That was one of the five solas of the Reformation. That is by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. And here, what does Josh say? He says, When we were back on the old earth as believers, we really had no idea how unmerited that grace really is. We called it grace, but we didn't really think it was totally grace. We thought we'd added just a tad of something good, that we had earned just a bit. So what is he saying here? He's literally saying that Christians are so inherently legalistic and and um, incapable, therefore, of, of believing that they were saved by grace and grace alone. That, we, that, that Christians, even after they're regenerated, even after they're filled with and indwelt by God's Spirit and receive a new heart, he's saying that we are still so inherently and inescapably, unavoidably legalistic that we denied being saved by grace alone and that we actually contributed to our salvation and some to some extent
He says, We thought we'd added just a tad of something good, that we had earned just a bit. We'll realize to our shame that to differing degrees we trusted in our intellect, our morality, the rightness of our doctrine, and our religious performance when all along it was completely grace. So, he's saying that there's people in heaven who don't believe in that basically everybody in heaven did not, does not believe in grace alone. Because as Christians, we are so fundamentally, inherently, inescapably legalistic that it is impossible for us to think that we were fully saved by grace alone and that we had added something. And, and he kind of touches on, he, he apparently touches on Keller here with the rightness of our doctrine that we thought that we were saved because of the rightness of our doctrine and our morality, our, our religious performance. And it's like, well, first of all, we are saved by a right understanding of the gospel. That is what saves us. You can't be saved by the Mormon. The Mormon Christ does not save you. So saying that is problematic in itself. But what alarms me is that nobody seems to have brought this up. Nobody's talking about this. And that's what is, is, this is why I wanted to talk about it and to, to kind of put this out because it doesn't seem, um, you know, Josh made a statement in his, in his, um, in his message, in his, in his Instagram where he's, uh, making the announcement of leaving the Christianity. And he's saying, by all measures that I know, I am not a Christian. And, well, that's just the problem. Sadly, I don't, it doesn't seem like Josh ever really understood what it means to be a Christian and how you become a Christian. How can you say, how can you say that you, there's no possible way you can't deny grace alone and, and still be saved? That that's impossible. And it's not psychologically or impossible for a Christian to believe that. I believe that. You should believe that as well. If you're a Christian, if you're a true believer, you believe that as well. You do not think that you contribute to your, to your salvation in any way. This is such basic Protestant doctrine, grace alone, that he is denying, that Josh is denying in this very book, and it seems like nobody pointed this out to him, and it's sad. Because now you're seeing this really bearing the bitter fruit of what, when you don't rightly understand law and gospel, which is, this is really what it is. It's a fundamental failure to distinguish between law and gospel and repentance and faith and grace alone and, and works and all of these things and how they tie together. It doesn't seem like Josh ever fully understood this properly. I mean, this is just, this is just, this is really terrible and and I think Josh was basically abandoning a faith that already was shipwrecked. Because if you can't reconcile these basic doctrines, these, these are basic Christian Christianity 101. If you can't make sense of this, then you, you're, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't have a right understanding of Christ and of salvation. So I hope this is beneficial for people. I know a lot of people in the church are asking questions about this because apostasy can be a very unnerving thing. It seems unexpected and but of course it's it's never an overnight thing. This was not an overnight thing and, and 
hopefully you've seen you're seeing that even more now as I've gone through this book and and shown just how bad and how false his understanding Josh's understanding of even basic Christian doctrines are uh, what was and so this is what I think the problem fundamentally is or was with Josh it is with Josh he did not ever fully grasp the distinction between law and gospel and so I'll leave that to you all to to meditate on and to think about um, I know we talked about a lot of things today and I want to close it with a um, a question from uh, the, the Heidelberg Catechism question 26 what believest thou when thou sayest I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth answer that the eternal father of our lord jesus christ who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence is for the sake of christ his son my god and father on whom i rely so entirely that i have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body and further that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God and willing, being a faithful father. So I'll end with that to show that, the, again, the, the Reformed understanding, the basic Protestant understanding of salvation is recognizing that we are utterly incapable of of, of, of contributing any in any way whatsoever to our salvation. That is, that is the exact opposite of what Josh is saying. He's saying we are so inherently and fundamentally legalistic that we can't avoid but think that we had something to do with our salvation, that we contributed, literally contributed some works to our salvation. And again, it's just the backwards. It's so backwards that there's no, I, I can't, I can't seem I can't see why Josh would based on that he he could not have possibly have been a, a a true Christian. I mean, you cannot fail to make a distinction so fundamental as law and gospel. That is the very heart of the gospel. And so I hope this was helpful and beneficial and um hopefully we'll pick it up next time with the the other host of the show and continue to carry on um about the these vital doctrines like john uh, especially as they relate to issues like john piper and those kinds of things we still need to finish that up and 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 continue the discussion with lordship salvation and all of those things so and i almost forgot to mention but i tweeted uh, about this a while back um back in july and i provided a picture of the quote that, that i read from on page 228 228 of the book and um i tweeted this out uh, saying very sad but not entirely surprising regarding at harris josh i've had concerns after reading dug down deep where he claims all christians are too inherently legalistic and hypocritical to believe in grace alone yet still go to heaven so and i provide a page of that quote so you can see it for yourself and see that it's just it's sad that he apparently did not understand what it was to be a christian and basically condemning uh, attributing motives and condemning every single 
person, whoever calls himself a believer, as being so fundamentally hypocritical and and legalistic that they're incapable of believing in grace alone. That's really that's really a pretty uh, a huge slap in the face to everybody who's a believer, a true believer, a sincere believer. So um, hopefully that gave you a lot to chew on, and we'll keep c carrying on the discussion uh, in the near future, hopefully with the other hosts of the show. And um, So stay tuned, and thank you for listening, and God bless.